Tom Yeomans, welcome to the New School. Thank you, Michael. You have a rich background in psychological work, in uh, music, classics, comparative literature, and have created something called the Concord Institute in Concord, Massachusetts, uh, in which you have developed uh, a life work in spiritual and global psychology. Could you describe the core of your work in spiritual and global psychology? Well, I, um, I, I think I would start with something very simple but um, intangible, which is a supposition that every human being has a hidden uh, dimension, uh, an inner source of vitality, of uh, wisdom, of courage, of many different qualities, uh, a sense of inner wisdom and guidance, and that this is a source. This is this is this is part of the human uh, makeup. It's a it's a birthright of all human beings, and this source uh, of guidance, information, I mean, there's so many things to be said about that source, but let's just say of life and vitality. Um, I, the term I use for that is the soul. And I have been interested for a very long time now in wondering, trying to study uh, and, and uh, learn how this soul works in people. In other words, how it can this, this resource can be tapped uh, in people's lives to give them a deeper sense of meaning, direction, purpose, so forth, and then also how this connection to the soul can be wounded. And in fact, uh, the connection to the soul can be lost. You can have what's commonly called a, a lost soul, or there can be what the term I've used is a soul wound. That there can be a, circumstances of a person's life can create a wound to the soul so that the person loses their trust and confidence in that deep source within them. So the work of the Concord Institute, really all of my work in uh, all the different forms it has taken, both as a, you know, a psychologist, an educator, an artist, and so forth, is really focused on the nature of the soul in this particular practical human way and to seeing how we can tap those resources to use the phrase from the 23rd Psalm, restore the soul, and help people really live from that deep place within themselves. Do you have a sense when in your life trajectory you first became interested in the soul? Well, I, I would say there were, there were two phases. Uh, the first was implicit in the sense that as a child, I think I had a... a a sensitivity to this hidden dimension. I experienced that, I would say, largely through nature as a young boy, and uh, then in my adolescence, more through art, through poetry, through music. But I, in a sense, I didn't, uh, I wasn't calling the soul. I was just drawn to these experiences of depth or of beauty or of connection. And at age 20, I was uh, traveling in Europe, actually, uh, in Florence, and in the church, Santa Maria Novella, in Florence, right across from the train station there, I had what I understood later to be an awakening to the soul, uh, where the implicit moved to the explicit. And for me, it was the struggles around the nature of Christ, uh, 
who exactly this person was. And in the course of these struggles, I think I opened to this source of life within myself in a more explicit way. So I would say at age 20, with that awakening, that's where I begin to ask these questions. But of course, I have looked back over my whole life now and think about the soul as being embedded uh, in nature and in art. Uh, and these things that I had, and in beauty, apperceptions that I had as a younger person with really not knowing what was happening. Can you take us back to that moment in the chapel and and describe what happened and what you experienced? Well, it, it, it was a, it was a powerful moment. I was, uh, as many young people my age, was you know bumming around Europe, and when I got to Rome and Florence, I began to feel these deeper questions stirring in me. And uh, there was a series of experiences leading up to this sitting in the Santa Maria Novella and asking myself and in considerable agony, and my friends who were traveling with me, not quite understanding what was going on with Tom sitting in this, they were waiting for me outside, uh, questioned, the way it came to me was who is, who is Christ and who is this person? Is he someone who is above human life, who, you know, uh, sits at the right hand of God and came down to us, but somehow doesn't really fully participate in our life is, uh, or is he someone who is really a completely human being? And does his life exemplify what it could be to be human, strictly human, merely human? In other words, the divine fully, the spiritual or the divine fully incarnated within the human life. And that was my struggle. And I was in there for three or four hours with that question and finally walked out of the church with a choice. And it's interesting in terms of my work since that I would choose to believe uh, and work with the fact that, that Christ was no more than a full and complete mature human being. And that whatever spiritual nature uh, he had, uh, everyone else was capable of touching. And it goes back to the first thing I said about the soul. So I chose at that moment, I think, a very practical, humane, human uh, sense of spirituality. Not, nothing too exalted, but more how can the human being really mature spiritually so they, they ripen into a full and very human, but also very unearth person. And I, I, you know, it's interesting talking about it now because I can see how that choice at age 20 has depth, I mean, it's completely influenced how I think about spiritual life and uh, the soul and spiritual work. Has the experience of the uh, Christ remained central to your spiritual life? Uh, yes and no. It, it, it's interesting. Uh, I, I certainly, if someone asked me, uh, are you a Christian? I would say yes, but I would follow it by saying I, I've never been able to find a church in which I felt that there was resonance to what I experienced uh, along the lines of what I just said. And in fact, I went on to explore many other different religions, and Buddhism certainly has been a major influence in my life, and Native American thought, and just a number of different perspectives on spiritual life. Uh, and at the moment, uh, I would say that I'm, uh, that somehow my belief or my understanding, maybe it's more than belief, my understanding of the soul is not strictly Christian. I would say 
if I had to say, I would say it has to do with some pan-human understanding of how the spiritual dimension works in all people. And that working is differentiated into countless cultures and countless languages. And there are obviously some very major religious systems that are ways in which that uh, contact with the spiritual dimension can be articulated and differentiated. But I, my focus really is on a pan-human process of psycho-spiritual development and how to support that really in the language of the individual. Uh, and I, I pay less attention to uh, particular religious schools or psychological schools of thought. In your education and evolution, you were trained, as I understand, early on in music, the classics, and literature. Is that correct? That's correct. And at a certain point, you encountered a man named Roberto Assagioli. Could you tell us who Assagioli was and how you encountered him? Yes. Well, again, this is a... This is another critical point in my life. Uh, I was studying comparative literature at Berkeley and uh, writing poetry and preparing for a PhD and just felt that I wasn't in the right place, and that this was fine, I could do it, uh, the professors were interested in my work and so forth, but there was something else for me to do and I wasn't quite on, uh, online, so to speak. So that led to a crisis about age 29 or 30 and actually left my leaving Berkeley and um, enrolling, going down to UC Santa Barbara and enrolling in a very innovative program uh, in psychology and education uh, where we were working to bring the human potential and humanistic psychology theories and practices into teacher training and curriculum development. So I really shifted at that point to something that I found much more immediately exciting and new and innovative. And it was at that point that this book by Asajoli called Psychosynthesis came into my hand. And I remember there was a moment when I was looking at one of the central diagrams in this book, which is, uh, which is an oval diagram of the, of the psyche. And I had this intuitive recognition that this is what I've been looking for. Now, this is what I've been looking for was psychosynthesis. And Asajoli was a psychiatrist in Italy uh, of the generation of slightly younger than Freud, a contemporary of Jung's, who very early departed from Freud's emphasis on the unconscious and said that, yes, this is very useful to know about the unconscious motives and drives, but that there's more to the human being than this. And he posited that there was a superconscious, which a realm of the psyche which held the potential of the human being, and also that there was what he called the higher self, what Jung called the self, which I call the soul. And that this really uh, was a spiritual principle within every human being, and that a psychotherapy or psychology needed to include the spiritual dimension. So as early as 1910, Roberto Assagioli, as a young medical student, coined the term psychosynthesis and began to talk about this broader view of the human being, which included the spiritual dimension. And at that moment, when I saw the diagram, 
I think I had a recognition that this is what I wanted to pursue. And it's interesting, I was in my late 20s, and, uh, you know, 10 years before I'd had this awakening in Florence, then I had tried all sorts of other things. And there was something of a, there was a deep connection between me and this psycho-spiritual orientation called psychosynthesis. And I, I joined up, you know, I went and got training and, and became a trainer and I found this a very, very fruitful and powerful way of working with people. When did you first meet Asajoli personally? Well, as part of this training, uh, my wife Anne and I went to Florence to meet with him in the fall of 1972. He was 84 at that time. I was 32. Uh, he was a remarkable, very old man, uh, full of joy and wisdom. And uh, we went and lived in Florence for the fall and met with him every two or three days. And were you with a group or by yourself? Uh, well, just my wife and I. And we actually took our children. We had a four-year-old and a nine-month-old, and we took these two uh, little boys with us to Florence, and that, that was quite a that was a pilgrimage, I would say, to take care of the two children and also work with Asajoli. And there was quite a remarkable circle of uh, American and perhaps other students around Asajoli during that period. Is that not true? Yes. Uh, Asajoli had worked in pretty much virtual isolation in Europe because obviously the major trends in psychology during the early part of the 20th century were did not include what he was talking about. And it's interesting that uh, in Maslow's writing, which came in the late 50s and early 60s, he, uh, there was the first kindred resonance, and he and Maslow corresponded, and he was very excited about Maslow's work, which was speaking about you know, the human potential and the process of self-realization, self-actualization. And out of the people who were part of the human potential movement, uh, in humanistic psychology, there was a group, of, a, a large number of people who went to study with Asajoli and, in a sense, discovered him and discovered psychosynthesis and gave it a voice in this country. It had grown in Europe uh, over that period of time, but there was a particular connection with what we were doing here in the United States and the, the third and fourth force of psychology. It was very kindred to psychosynthesis. Now, was the diagram that you were looking at the circle diagram? Yes, it's an egg with differentiation of the psyche with the, with the higher self at the top. So, as, as I remember it, it's an egg, and then the lower third of the egg is the, the lower unconscious, and then there's a middle third that, I don't know what the term is, but the middle, middle unconscious, and then the top third is the higher unconscious. Is that correct? That's correct. And at the center of that egg is a dot, which represents the point of awareness. That's right. And that dot at the center of the egg is connected by a, uh, a, a, a what is sort of a dotted line. dotted line to a dot at the top of the egg, which represents the soul or the higher self. Exactly. And then one can add to that, can one not, in Asajoli's tradition, that around that central point of awareness are clustered various subpersonalities that can be located either in the middle unconscious, the lower unconscious, or the higher unconscious. Is that correct? Yes. You know, a, way, a way of being saying that would be that the personality is composed of a system of identifications, which we can call subcells or subparts, and these are, you can say, create a circle around that central point. 
point. And those subpersonalities have roots in the lower unconscious. In other words, they have roots in earlier trauma, earlier experience. And they also have roots in the superconscious or the higher unconscious in the sense that they hold unlived potential or potential is just emerging. So very interesting to think of, if you think about the personality as that system of identifications at the center of which is the I or the fair witness or the, or, um, the observer, then you're able to, to do, do this. You're able to basically look at the structure of the personality, including the unconscious, and heal it, develop it, reorganize it. So it's a more and more coherent form, if you want to say, or vehicle for the expression of the energy of the soul. So going back to what I was saying before about the soul wound, you can have people who have, in a sense, at their, their deepest nature, is that they are a soul, that they have this deep source of meaning and purpose. But because of the configuration of their personality, the woundedness, the dysfunction, however you would say it, that energy can't get through in a coherent way. And one of the real contributions of psychosynthesis was this studying of the interplay between the spiritual and psychological. And doing psychological work, much as most psychotherapy does, you know, there's schools, but within the spiritual context, so that you're always looking at personal function or dysfunction within this larger context of to what degree does this system of identifications of behaviors and attitudes, to what degree does this system allow and encourage the full expression of who this person really is, which is a soul, which is a higher self. To what degree does that energy flow through coherently, evenly, harmoniously into the world? And that's a fabulous question. I mean, it's just, it's such a contribution to how to look at the human being because it isn't kind of in a sort of a, um, a vague way saying we're all spiritual or we're all one. It's saying, no, we're highly differentiated individual systems that work to a greater or lesser degree to embody, to express, and to give forth uh, the depth and meaning and purpose of who we really are, what I call the soul. One of the practices that I learned from friends trained in psychosynthesis was to make a list of what I considered my the known subpersonalities or identifications as a father, as a son, as a uh, someone who works in nonprofit work, and so on and so forth, and then uh, to write the major identifications down on separate pieces of paper, put them in a circle around me with a blank piece of paper in the middle of the circle, right. stand on the blank piece of uh, paper, yeah. and then practice stepping in and out of the various subpersonalities so that I learned the full experience of identification with a subpersonality and then was able to say to myself, yes, this is a part of me, but I'm more than this. I'm also the, the observing self. Yeah. And uh, and as I understand, you know much more about this than I do, uh, uh, when you talked about the harmonizing process, by recognizing the various subpersonalities and learning to identify and disidentify with them, the purpose of that is to gradually uh, uh, help them uh, stop working at cross-purposes and gradually begin to align toward 
the core sense of purpose in the life. Yes, exactly, Michael. It, it, I mean, there are two things here. One is exactly what you said. Is it through the subpersonality work, through the healing work, it can be body work and imagery, it can be many different ways. You heal and reorganize the subpersonalities through identification and disidentification, just what you described, through standing at the center, cultivating that sense of what's called the I or the observer. Uh, you gradually recohere them so that they serve, if you want to say, the higher self, to use the, uh, you know, the, use the psychosynthesis term more fully so that, that that can be expressed. The other thing, though, that I think important is the other process, and Asajoli talks about this, it's a much longer process, but it's a fundamental shift of identification from the personality to the soul. It's, it, 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 the way he would say in the disidentification exercise is, I have a personality, but I'm not my personality. Who am I then? I am I. I am myself. And there are particular words. I would say, you know, I am my soul. I am the essence of who I am, which is beyond my personality. It's more. It's deeply connected to the universe, to all people, to you know. There are many things to say about the soul, and I'm a very particular human being who wants to express to this personality. So, if you think about the most mature people that you know, these are people who are not caught in their personality dynamics. On the other hand, they haven't disassociated. They're very, they're very particular human beings. But there's a quality of radiance, of wisdom, of connection, of presence, of gift, of beauty. Again, there are many different words you can use. That's coming through them. And they may not even be that aware of it. It's, it's something that they have lived so deeply and have made this gradual shift that I'm talking about. That they're now living in the world as souls. Souls that are expressing in very particular ways to a personality that has been cohered, reorganized, healed, whatever, in such a way that that's possible, just what you were saying. I was reading the other day, quite by accident, a biography of Dante by R.W.B. Taylor, I believe his name is. He's a professor at Yale. And uh, was remembering uh, that I had read that uh, Assagioli was uh, deeply influenced as an Italian, partly, but also just uh, in his broad and deep uh, explorations of, of uh, consciousness by Dante. And I thought about that uh, three-part division of consciousness, and I recognized in it, of course, the, the three, uh, three parts of uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. And I wondered whether that is something that's widely recognized. I mean, for one thing, do we know... Do we have any way of knowing whether Asajoli identified uh, uh, the three parts of the uh, soul journey and the divine comedy with those three parts of uh, of uh, consciousness uh, or not? Do you know that or not? Well, I, I don't. You know, I don't know if there's a one-to-one -one correspondence. He was deeply steeped in literatures from different traditions, actually, and certainly within the medieval. Christian tradition, Dante, uh, you know, is a bit like Bach. Right. Uh, so that I would say that he, and he spoke about Dante, uh, and Piero, uh, Perucci was one of the main people who's worked with him, has uh, given talks about the relation of psychosynthesis and, and Dante. 
I, I would say that Asajoli saw it as a map of consciousness, that for the medieval person, Dante was trying in as holistic way as possible to portray through the imageries of the time what the path of psychospiritual development was. And he did it within the metaphors of, you know, that, that were current at, the, at that time when he was writing. And certainly Asajoli, as an Italian, uh, you know, recognized it. But, you know, Asajoli was Jewish, and the Kabbalah and the Tree of Life was also very important to him. He was deeply interested in Hinduism and, you know, the maps of consciousness that the Hindu perspective gives. Uh, he, he was a very, very widely read uh, and informed person. Was he not also interested in the work of the mystical uh, writer Alice Bailey? Yes, he was. And it's an interesting story there because um, often people will say that psychosynthesis is simply, uh, you know, a kind of translation of Alice Bailey's work. But in the actual history here is that, as I said earlier, Asajoli coined the term psychosynthesis in 1910 and had an institute in the 20s in Rome and was teaching and developing the theory. Uh, I spoke to someone who knew him, uh, an English woman, who said one of the interesting things about Asajoli was that he was very lonely, that he couldn't, and I, I implied this earlier, that he couldn't find colleagues that resonated with his vision. He was very far ahead of his time from a psychological uh, point of view. And so he was always trying to connect with, trying to find some group with which he, who would be interested in what he was doing. And in the 30s, so this is, you know, several decades after he uh, first coined the word psychosynthesis and began to develop it, he joined up a, a sort of an esoteric school that was based on Alice Bailey's work in England called the Arcane School. And it was a correspondence course, and he began to fill in these, they would send out letters or lessons, I guess, they were working with. And the people in England were had a whole group of students who were doing this correspondence course, and they began to get these extraordinary letters back from Italy. He said, who is this person? And uh, so they said, let's invite him over uh, to England and, and meet him, because his answers to these questions based on the Bailey work, are so extraordinary that we need to meet him. So he was brought over to England, and actually people appreciated him a great deal, and he made annual trips to England, and he joined the circle of people around the Bailey work at that time. And he was interested in it, but it's very... I spoke to him once about this, and I said, what about these blue books and Alice Bailey? I, they don't seem that grounded to me. They don't seem really that relevant to the real struggles of, of human beings. And he said, don't worry about that. He says, that's my religion. Uh, you don't need to think about those. So he, he was part of the Bailey group, but I think he was really wanted psychosynthesis to stand on its own and to make a contribution to Western depth psychology, which, which it has and still continues to. There was a experience that at least some of the uh, uh, participants in psychosynthesis had on on the West Coast that is described in a book called The Wrong Way Home, in which uh, one particular working group, which you may have been involved with, got involved in what many people later felt was a, a cult-like experience where the leader who, who lost his balance. Were you part of that 
group and that experience? I lived through that, yes. Could you describe what that was like? Well, it, it was painful. That's the first thing to say. But it's more interesting than just painful. Uh, of course, there'd be many, many different perspectives from different people on what happened there. But I would, I would give you my perspective, which is interesting in terms of not only psychosynthesis, but generally spiritual work, is that that group, and actually psychosynthesis at that time, was emphasizing very much, and this was in line also with the human potential movement, was emphasizing the superconscious and superconscious material and divine qualities and the kind of, if you, if you talk about the egg diagram, kind of going up into the superconscious. And I think not, attention, uh, not enough attention was being paid to the shadow, uh, to the darker elements of the human psyche, uh, to the possible presence of really destructive human energy. And this group, which, which was a very powerful group of people, and wonderful people, um, in some ways we were, we were naive. We were not holding really the whole. We were caught up and excited about the more visionary aspects of psychosynthesis, which was also very much where the culture was at that time. And it's interesting that there were an, a number of cults, James, uh, you know, Jonestown being the most uh, notorious, but there were a number of cults at that time where the same thing was happening, where you basically, in terms of the diagram, you were getting an imbalance, a tilt upward, without enough balance and grounded attention to the, the lower part, so to speak. And as a result, the, as more and more energy was released into the group or into individuals, it tended to flow down into the lower, lower half of the diagram, so to speak, and stir up these unconscious darker elements, which in, the, in this case of the San Francisco group eventually took over. And I've done a, a lot of work with cult survivors since, and um, it's, this is a very common pattern, is that there's too much projection of, if you want to say, bright spiritual or light spiritual energy, uh, and not enough attention to the darker elements that are always there and need to be integrated. And as a result, you get a kind of um, devolution rather than evolution. Uh, of a group, in this case of a group, but I've seen this with individuals too, is that they open spiritually, they become unbalanced, and then without paying enough attention to the more human shadow elements, you know, greed, power, sex, whatever it is, and that these eventually take over out of that imbalance. And it's been very interesting to watch gurus uh, who again and again have fallen uh, in the same way of not paying enough attention to uh, these more human, darker elements of the human being. Now, conversely, if you're willing, and I think this is one thing we learned from that experience, if you're willing to stay on the ground, so to speak, and let the soul come to you, the way I was talking about it before, and let the soul come through you and do the personal work and the work with the darker elements of your more constricted or wounded or whatever they would be, elements within yourself, then gradually you can have a spiritual development that stays grounded and balanced in a way that makes it safe, if you want to say, to um, to be open to and use that degree of energy. I've been privileged to read uh, a set of notes that you've circulated to uh, uh, a group of uh, colleagues over the years that, that you simply label occasional notes. Uh, and uh, 
which describes, as I understand it, the evolution of your work uh, after you uh, uh, separated uh, somewhat from psychosynthesis and created your own uh, work in uh, spiritual uh, psychology. And uh, one of those notes uh, on particularity, a date of January 2000, you write, really quite relevant to what we've just been saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there is a tendency sometimes in spiritual work to look for and support the more inner and universal aspects of spiritual experience and to assume that when we are thus connected and when we transcend our limitations, our ego, and experience a connection with all life that takes us beyond ourselves, we will then change how we live. This, of course, is true to a degree, and this upward or inward movement of the soul is very powerful and liberating. But what is sometimes missed or not emphasized enough is the complementary movement downward or outward of the soul force, as Gandhi termed it, through the psyche and personality and its infusion of the particulars of a given life and the choices that spring from this experience, which bring about a very specific bring about very specific changes in attitude and behavior. And so it sounds to me as though one of the the deep lessons that you took from uh, the experience with uh, a very elegant and beautiful uh, system of spiritual psychology, namely psychosynthesis, uh, which, given the culture of uh, uh, the period of time in which it became... uh, manifested in a distorted way as a, a cult experience uh, 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 that, as you say, focused too much on the higher uh, higher uh, consciousness, that, that you really deeply in your own work have grounded yourself in what you describe as an embodied spirituality. Yes. Uh, what I would say before I speak about my own work is to say I think this was an immaturity that was shared throughout the culture that in the kind of spiritual awakening of the late 60s and early 70s that as you know spiritual life coming to America that we were immature spiritually and that this and this was not the only incident of this kind of thing happening in psychosynthesis there were European institutes where this happened uh, not to the same degree, but it, it's a tracing. It's a tracing within psychosynthesis, and uh, you know this has happened in Buddhist uh, communities. It's, it was something of the times, and I, I want to say that I think psychosynthesis, uh, like the other disciplines, uh, have matured, and that the culture has matured. And there are some cults now, but they're they're nowhere near uh, as rampant. And furthermore, uh, they, it's been interesting to be, I've been part of several times when I've helped people basically uh, reverse that process and, and bring down a guru who is, um, you know, contain and bring down a guru who, is, who has distorted, is using the spiritual power in a distorted way. So I, I like to see that, including psychosynthesis, as we all have gotten more mature. Mm-hmm. We all understand more the necessity to be grounded. Uh, and... Um, and I am connected to psychosynthesis, and these are very close friends, and I'm working now again in psychosynthesis. So that, that's, I want to frame it in, in that. And as you know, uh, they are close friends of mine as well, and, uh, and I have the, the deepest respect and have 
for psychosynthesis and, and benefited enormously. It's one of the fundamental structures of the way I understand the world. I, I brought it out because it seemed to me useful that to say that for uh, uh, a whole community of people, this was uh, a searing life experience that led toward the kind of uh, spiritual maturity that you're describing. Exactly, and it was it was a really powerful teaching for all of us. It was one of those moments you wouldn't wish on anybody, but you look back and you're grateful for it because it was so much learning that came out of it. And you know, I, the other thing I think about psychosynthesis is that it has a very long half life, and I think in some ways that. What Asajoli saw in 1910 won't be realized until, you know, 2110. Mm -hmm. I, I just think that it's such a comprehensive system, and actually one of the difficulties of teaching psychosynthesis is it is so comprehensive. You know, when Sam Keane went to interview Asajoli, he asked him, well, it's such a comprehensive system, what, does it have any limitations? And Asajoli very wisely said, yes, it has limitations of no limitations. Mm -hmm. So it, I think it's it's a powerful, you know, there have been mistakes made and the shortcomings and so forth, but it's a very powerful frame. Now, for me, what I did in the 90s and the reason I shifted to spiritual global psychology uh, was really because at that time I was trying to work with some ideas that it was hard for me to get into psychosynthesis. I couldn't get any resonance uh at that time with the, with the community. And I also just wanted to create a, a rubric under which I could think more freely. I, I, felt, I felt this more in Europe than here, but there, any discipline develops an orthodoxy. And to some degree, there was an orthodoxy in psychosynthesis that I felt was limiting my thinking. And it seemed like so many things were happening that I wanted to really be free to think widely about new influences that were coming and and think it more about person to planet and the process of uh, you know growth the soul at other levels of organization and so forth so I simply took these two terms spiritual and psychology which at the time were not being used and said I'm going to put these together uh, as a rubric under which I can teach and explore and pull together ideas from different traditions that seem to me support what I was talking about at the beginning, the universal process of psycho-spiritual development. So I drew on depth psychology, I drew on Buddhism, I drew on Native American thought, I drew on you know, depth psychology, Ken Wilber's work, Stan Groff's work, uh, the Jungian perspective. Uh, I tried to call, I brought literature in, it seems to me that Dostoevsky understands certain things about, and Tolstoy, certain things about psychospiritual development. And I tried, really, rather than saying, here's a school of thought, I said, let's put at the center of our inquiry what we are going to assume is a universal process of psychospiritual development that's infinitely differentiated culturally and individually. Can we get to the principles that underlie that process? And can we get to those principles by looking at different perspectives on that process and somehow synthesizing them so that we can gradually identify, if you want to say, the first principles by which this universal process operates? If we can do that, then we can derive from those principles practices that are appropriate in any culture. So there's my global, there's the planetary perspective. 
I said, you know, I want to go for that process and put that at the center of concern rather than any particular set of techniques or methods or whatever. And, uh, you know, that's something that intrigued me and, and uh, gave me a lot to think about. <laughs> so that's why I shifted to spiritual global psychology, really to give myself room to think. And it's interesting to me in your occasional notes that rather than focusing on these different traditions that have helped inform you and, and this global approach to spiritual psychology, you're focused on things that are actually very uh, uh, common experiences in life. Uh, so, for example, loneliness. You write about loneliness. Could you talk a little about loneliness as it relates to spiritual life? Well, I would say, I'll speak about loneliness, but I, I want to say generally in terms of what I'm writing about, um, rather than, I mean, the schools of thought have definitely influenced me, and in my teaching, I definitely have readings from them, and I, you know, reference different people. But here, uh, the reason for that, Michael, really is that another basic premise that I'm exploring is that it's in the immediacy of a person's experience that you find the soul. Uh, it's not in something abstract. It's not in an idea, even the best idea. It's in paying very, very close attention to what a person experiences moment to moment. Along the lines I was saying, what is the experience of connection? How does this person, at those moments when they're in touch with that deep flow of meaning and purpose, which we're calling the soul, what do they actually experience? How do they, you know, how does the personality, like a, a tuning fork, how does it resonate to the soul force, to the energy of the soul? And then also, how, when a person is disconnected and lost, what is that experience? So what I'm, what I'm doing is saying that it's in the studying the actual particular experiences moment to moment in the process that I just talked about in very grand terms that you're going to actually restore the soul. You're so this is what you mean by embodied spirituality? Yeah. That you, you're going... Well, no. <laughs> it's, okay. it's part of what I mean, because that's how you get to embodiment, is by paying very close you know, attention to experience. Now, if you do that... I'll get back to loneliness. If you, yeah. if you do that, then what you do... You're doing two things. One, you're studying the degree to which a person is connected or disconnected and what kind of work they have to do in order to restore that connection, all that kind of thing. The other thing, though, you're doing is you're teaching people to retrust their own experience. One, to be aware of it. Two, to trust on it, trust it. And three, to act on it. And if you want to talk about the primal wounds, that's John Furman and Ann Gila's term for it, the primal wound that we receive as children, it's that we are talked out of or we lose confidence in our deep spiritual nature. We begin to feel that we can't live who we are here. So we look around to see, well, how do I survive? How do I need to live in order to survive? And we betray ourselves. To some degree, we move away from that basic trust of who we are and what we're here to bring to the world. So in teaching people to stay very close to their experience, you're doing two things. The first thing is what I said, the reorganization. But a meta-learning is, oh, my experience is sufficient. Everything I need is in that experience. If I learn to trust and pay very close attention to my experience, I will find my way. 
Now, people can help you with that, teachers and, you know, all the different people that can help. But the danger in spiritual work is that you'll project that basic trust onto somebody else and give yourself over to that person. And in its most extreme form, you have the cults that we were talking about before. So what you're really doing in that way of working is restoring a basic trust in one's own experience that brings the soul gradually right into the here and now. And that's your question about embodiment, is that if you do that over time, and if you assume that some fragment, so to speak, of the soul is embedded in every experience that a person has, they need to find what it is. You will gradually, the soul will gradually become embodied, that that spiritual force, that energy that we most essentially are, will find a home in our body, feelings, and mind, in our daily life, in our daily relationships, in our relationship to nature, uh, and on the planet. So that's what I mean by embodied spirituality. That's helpful. I, I touched on loneliness because, um, among other things, I personally often feel quite lonely. I have you know, a wonderful community of work. I have a wonderful family and friends, but I quite intensively experience loneliness. And, and you've described three kinds of loneliness, psychological loneliness, existential loneliness, and spiritual loneliness. Yeah. And can you just say a little about how one sorts out the experience of loneliness? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, I, too, have... Uh I, too, have felt this loneliness, Michael, uh, in the midst of friends and family and, you know, beloved people and so forth. And so I'd love to talk about that. And I also just would like to, uh, before I do that, uh, quote Asajoli again, who said to Anne, my wife, who was also speaking about loneliness, he said, measure the degree of loneliness you experience by the preciousness of the gift you bring. Huh. So I'll come back to that because that is measure crucial. the degree of loneliness, loneliness you experience. Yeah, by the preciousness of the gift you bring. What did he mean by that? Well, that's he's talking about spiritual loneliness. Let me work up to that. Yes. The first one, personal loneliness. You know, we all have that. It's a subpersonality that feels cut off or isolated, has been wounded. Um, you know, it's uh, it's a child in us that. Uh, feels, wants company, wants comfort, want, wants to be connected. You know? So that can be worked with uh, as a subpersonality. You can see how the child has been wounded. You can, uh, you know, we very often have the person uh, who's working with a subpersonality like that uh, keep the child company, you know, talk to the child, have a dialogue with the child, find out what the child needs, and so forth and so on. So that kind of personal loneliness can be healed in that particular way. Existential loneliness is interesting. The existentialists put their finger on this. Uh, it's, in a sense, an experience of the whole personality, not a subpersonality. An experience of the whole personality in relationship to the world, that we are, we are essentially, as personalities alone, we, uh, and there's, there's dignity in that. There's integrity in that. There's a kind of wholeness at that existential level as, as people... We are, we are separate and distinct from other people. And part of spiritual maturity, actually, and Ken Wilber is very good about this. He calls it the existential band in his, in his uh, uh, scheme of development. We need to face our loneliness and face the responsibility and that we will die and that uh, we are essentially alone and separate as human beings. 
Asajoli says, and in, his, in the beginning of the book, he says that existential perspective is transitory. It's very important, and if you jump over it, you get what we call premature transcendence, where people try to avoid the loneliness by going straight to the soul, to a kind of a spiritual oneness, and it doesn't work. And actually, that's one one of the problems, one of the things that happens in cults. So the existential loneliness is painful, but very very dignified because it's the integrity of one's person in the world. Now, spiritual loneliness, uh, going back to Ask Jolie's quote, it's 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 different. It is the loneliness of the soul that can't find fully a way to express and release its energy in the world. And it's also the loneliness of the soul that knows it's carrying a gift uh, that isn't here yet, so to speak. In other words, that the culture doesn't resonate to and recognize yet. You're right. You're right. So strangely enough, embracing this loneliness becomes a prerequisite for the experience of full human aliveness. You write, Thomas Merton once said, quote, the person who has not fully embraced his or her utter aloneness in God has not begun to live. Right. So, if you know, using the terms we were before, it's like if you can disidentify from all those other levels, you come to an aloneness in God, in the universe, in the universal spirit. Again, how you say that. And that's, in essence, who you are. And the paradox is if you're willing to let go of all those other things, you get an experience of, I think in that article, I say a shift from aloneness to all oneness. In other words, there is a larger union that you experience. So you, you have to travel through that spiritual aloneness to get, at, get to that deeper sense of maturity or union. But the other thing that's in terms of what you were saying about yourself and what I experienced is I think there is a, a spiritual aloneness that needs to be born when you're a gifted person who's carrying a gift, an idea, a perspective, whatever, that is ahead of where the cultural norms are. And remember I was talking about Asajoli looking desperately for people in the early part of his life. He had something buried in his soul, a certain perspective, idea, for which there was no resonance in the culture yet. Or I think of Van Gogh and his paintings. Uh, you know, who is a desperate and lonely person with tremendous spiritual ideals. You read Van Gogh's letters, they're unbelievable, in terms of his compassion for humanity and what he wanted to create. And his paintings, when he died, they were all in his brother's apartment in Paris, worth nothing. But he, he was courageous in staying with what was important to him spiritually and expressing it. And of course, you know, 200 years, 100 years later, 200 years later, his, his paintings are well recognized. So I think the loneliness, Michael, the spiritual loneliness, uh, is valuable in terms of passing through to the all-oneness, but it's also important to bear because it allows you to recognize the gift that you are bringing to the culture and to bear, if you want to say, the tension or the loneliness between where the culture is and what you in your truth know could be. Hmm. That's very helpful. Does that make sense? It does. You write also very movingly about shyness as a portal to the soul. And I know, again, in my own experience, that a 
although it sounds strange to some people, that I experience myself as a shy person. And in fact, part of what I love about these new school dialogues is that they give me permission to reach out to people that I otherwise think might not want to talk to me or whatever it is. So, uh, uh, But I was just very touched by your description of shyness as a portal to the soul rather than something to be overcome. Could you talk a little about shyness? Yes, I, I'm, I'm one of those people, too. Here we are, two shy men talking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you see this in children. This is the place you can see it. You, you know, I, I would say that the shyness in a child is a symptom of spiritual connection. So that the child is connected and then is looking out to see, will that be received? And the soul wound, uh, there are many ways this can happen, but one, one of the ways is if that shyness is somehow mocked or it's, you know, don't be embarrassed or speak up or, you know, whatever a, a parent, a well-meaning parent might do uh, to interrupt that. But if you, if you watch children closely, you'll see that they're inherently shy because they're inherently connected. And what they're trying to work out is the mediation or the interface between that shyness and connection in the world. Now, if you know that, and you, maybe you'd like to experiment with this, I've done this many times. One, I'm 6'4", so I get down on my knees, so I'm at the same level as a child. And then I just become present to whatever they're experiencing and become interested in it. And you'll see, you'll see the soul come forth. It just comes right out. It's right there. It, 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 or if you, I, in, in my therapeutic work, I, again and again and again, when the shyness comes up, I'll say, it's just fine to be shy. This is a symptom of the soul. Bear your shyness, and then let's see what you experience. And what always comes out of that is a deeper sense of connection. Conversely, the wound to the soul can be when the shyness is not accepted, and it's mocked, and the child is told they should do something else. And then the child has to disconnect from that sensibility, come out, but without the sensibility, and begin to create the behaviors and attitudes uh, that will protect them from that wound, protect them from, the, from actually the pain of that primal wound. So it's, it's, it is, it's a central spiritual uh, uh, quality, shyness is, actually. You also write about spiritual allies and adversaries, and... I find this particularly interesting because you you talk about the spiritual adversary as uh, something that is deeply important to recognize in oneself, uh, though it must be handled with great care. And then you talk about spiritual allies, both inner and outer allies, uh, that uh, guide and protect us. Uh, in terms of spiritual adversaries, you describe the soul's noble adversary and tell the story uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh about the Buddha and uh, the spiritual adversary. Um, perhaps we might start with that story from Thich Nhat Hanh. Could you tell that story? Well, yes, a wonderful story. It's, a, it's from the Buddhist tradition of... Uh, the Buddha being in his ashram, and Ananda, who's the chief disciple, is there with him, and Mara, who in Buddhist uh, 
in the Buddhist think, way of thinking is the impersonation of evil. Mara is coming, uh, coming. Ananda sees Mara coming toward the ashram, and he runs in and says to the Buddha, "Oh Buddha, Buddha, Mara's coming. What should we do? Lock the gate? You know, close the door? We have to keep him out." And the Buddha, um, you know, said, "No, let him in. Invite him in for tea." So uh, Ananda opens the door and hides behind the door, and Mara comes in. You know, this big, big dark figure. And uh, the Buddha says, uh, Mara, how are you? How's the family? Come have some tea. And they sit together and have tea. And then Mara leaves. And, um, and the Buddha turns to Ananda, who's sort of quaking behind the door, and says, Ananda, remember, without Mara, no Buddha. Uh-huh. So it's a beautiful story, because the problem with talking about the spiritual adversary uh, or, the, or evil or you know whatever you would call it, uh, is that it easily gets polarized and then projected. So there, and we've got this going on big time on the planet now. Uh, so the, the beauty of the of the Buddhist story is that it's non-dual. It's the Buddhist basically saying, "Listen, Mara is an inherent part of spiritual life. It's it's who we are." He's really saying that to Ananda. Ananda is you know terrified of the dark force and. Uh, and wanting to protect himself from it and so forth. And the Buddha is obviously holding a larger non-dual perspective. So in my thinking, this is, it's controversial, but my, I think one of the things I thought was important, particularly after this experience uh, in San Francisco, but also everywhere, uh, all sorts of things are happening that are vehemently destructive. Where is that coming from? Where is that coming from in the human psyche? Um, and to me, it's been helpful in my own thinking and also in working with people to posit the existence of some force that's within us, uh, which I call the spiritual adversary, um, which is sort of us at our most separative and destructive of life, let's put it that way, something like that. And we, we have that principle within us, and we, we need to make it conscious, and just like Buddha, we need to invite it for tea, and we need to see that this is, this is an inherent part of us. If we don't, we project it on somebody else, that's one thing, or we repress it, and then it has all sorts of ways of, of taking over. So that, that's where it gets complicated. But still, uh, to have this uh, idea of the spiritual adversary as part of the human psyche, something we can work with, uh, has actually been immensely helpful to the people that uh, I've worked with. It's not appropriate for all people. It's not an issue for all people. But for certain people at certain times, this is the issue. And if they are working with someone who doesn't really acknowledge this as a real thing, it, it can, it's not useful to them. You go on from there to talk about spiritual calling on the collective adversary, and, and that seems to connect with what you've just been saying about uh, the adversarial forces uh, at work in the world at large today. And you write about uh, the experience of the Holocaust, obviously, and uh, other uh, comparable earlier experiences with this. And that seems to suggest uh, just the broader point that both uh, Sajoli and Psychosynthesis and you and your work um, see the the work of uh, spiritual psychology or psychosynthesis not only in terms of our uh, our personal evolution or synthesis, but also 
our collective evolution as a species and our efforts to deal not only with our personal uh, uh, adversary, but with our with our collective adversary as well. Yes, I mean, you know, another way of talking about the spiritual, using again the Buddhist perspective, is it's simply the amalgam of fear and ignorance that we all carry, and that fear, we each have a little portion of that fear and ignorance in us that we're trying to overcome uh, and and learn how to deal with and learn to go beyond and all the things that we've talked about. You also can have fear and ignorance in the collective. Uh, and in fact, uh, it can be a very powerful force that sweeps people into doing things that they never would have done if they'd been left alone. So Nazi journey, Germany is a case in point. But for example, the genocides in Rwanda and Burundi uh, were, are, and there are many examples now of where people who've been living peacefully side by side, these elements were stirred up in them in such a way that there was this collective separation, if you want to say, and then genocide. So, uh, and maybe you could even say that we as a species now are being confronted in this very warlike period that we're in, uh, and this very uh, mutually projected darkness period that we're in, that we're being confronted uh, with an image of our adversary, our species adversary, so to speak, to planetary health uh, and to a, a kind of movement or maturation of the species so that we actually learn to live on the planet, one, within our means, if we look at the environmental holocaust, and two, socially, uh, as Martin Luther King says, you know, we'll either learn to live together in brothers and sisters or perish as fools. So it, there are adversarial forces on the planet that are at work, as I say in the article, really as a whetstone to challenge us to go deeper spiritually, to be more connected and to find ways that will really build up life rather than destroy it. So Asajoli talked about this um, as the supreme synthesis, he, and uh, Teilhard de Chardin, of course, talks about this at the Omega point, that there is in humanity a destiny. There, there is a sense that we as a species have a, have a role or a destiny fulfilled on the planet, on the planet Earth. My sense is that it is, it is as custodians of the Earth, not as rapers of the Earth, not as, uh, you know, exploiters of the resources or of the other kingdoms. And clearly, we're very far from that. On the other hand, you see everywhere and in all countries people resonating to that idea and working very, very hard to transform how humanity is on the face of the earth in such a way that we can live within our means and live within our relationships to other kingdoms and live with, you know, with harmonious relationships to each other. So, you know, I think that these forces both for maturity and uh, for fear and ignorance are alive and well on the planet. And certainly spiritual slash global psychology is trying to talk at those levels and understand at those levels uh, in a kind of micro-macro correspondence in saying that the individual can tell us an awful lot about how these dynamics are happening at other levels. But of course, the forms are very different. And Asajoli, again, somewhat cryptically, he didn't, he didn't spell out anything too much. But he definitely had the idea that this process of psychosynthesis, this process of spiritual maturation, 
would occur at all levels of organization. And we have done some very interesting work at the group level of helping groups grow spiritually and still get their job done. And people are now beginning to think about organizations in the same light. Uh, there's been a little work on looking at the relationship between nations uh, within this perspective. And, you know, this is the half-life of psychosynthesis. There's lots of work to be done still. You write that many experiences arrive from this practice of living experience fully. And you describe several. You say the first is gratitude. Asajola used to say that gratitude is the deepest human emotion. Mm -hmm. The second is joy. Asajoli once wrote on a slip of paper to Anne and me, quote, the yoga of joy. Joy is magnetic. Joy makes war impossible. And then uh, you go on about each of these points. And then you, you write, the third is beauty. Dostoevsky said, beauty will save the earth. I'd like to ask you, then you go on to say the fourth is mystery, but I'd like to ask you uh, that the least obvious of those in some sense is uh, uh, your comment about uh, Dostoevsky's sense of beauty. And I didn't know that the Greek word cosmos also means beauty. So I just wondered if you would explore that point, that yeah. beauty will save the earth. Yeah. Well, this goes back to Pythagoras. You know, who was the first one person to use this word cosmos with a K um, in this particular way. And of course we have a we have a, um, a derivation and a degradation of it in cosmetic, you know, that kind of superficial beauty. But cosmos is a beautiful word in Greek because it means beauty and uh, it means the beauty of the whole. Uh, and it also, again drawing a Pythagoras, uh, it it means a deep order that there's a deep order to the world, to the universe, uh, that it's not random. And, you know, now we have added in our thinking that, it, you know, it's progressive and the universe story that Thomas Berry and Brian Swim have been working with. And that there, there's many ways in which we've added to our idea of a progressive and underlying order to the universe. And this is um, actually both in religious thought and scientific thought. This is, this is quite clear. So... This experience of beauty, which I, I think in that article I, I, I refer to as cosmos with a K, what I've seen is that when a person is deeply connected to their soul, uh, when their soul has, when they've ripened as a soul, when uh, soul and personality are integrated in the way I talked about, uh, that they get an increasing, they have an increasing experience of cosmos. They have an increasing experience. It's, a, it's an apperception. It's an immediate apperception of in, how incredibly beautiful, both in the sense of beauty and in the sense of how deeply orderly. Those two, you have to hold those two, uh, two things. And it's not mechanical order. It's not arbitrary order. It's this organic order, which is beautiful. People have that perception they actually begin, it's almost like that's how the soul is seeing the world all the time. And we fragment that perception because of our suffering, because of our inability to stay connected, all the things that we talked about before. So if you think about an individual at that moment, they, and we've all had moments of cosmos, we've all had moments of that perception of beauty, and we're, actually they give us great joy and we're very grateful for them. They don't last. But imagine if you could work 
in such a way that more and more people would have a consistent experience of, of that beauty, by which I'm saying a sustained connection to their own soul, to who they are. And then if you extrapolate from that, that groups and nations and, the, and humanity as a whole could begin to perceive in a sustained way how incredibly beautiful and deeply orderly this universe, this planet, and this universe is in which we live, everything would change. Everything would change. We, and particularly, we would see how precious this beauty is. We would then not want to destroy it. Whereas at the moment, because we can't see how beautiful it is, because we're distracted, because we're wounded, because we're projecting, because we're pressing, because we're whatever, we are beauty blind. And the war, the wars and the competition and the, you know, all the things that we see that are devastating the earth come out of the loss of that perception of beauty. So really what I'm saying is that conversely, as we restore our sight in this way, we will be able to save the, save the world. And I think that's what that quote from Dostoevsky is, is trying to say. You mentioned the work you've done with groups and organizations. We've talked about personal uh, spiritual psychology. We've talked about the planetary work. But at the intermediate level, of course, is the, the groups and organizations that we're all part of. Uh, I've worked at, as you know, at a center called Commonweal for the last 32 years. When you work with a small organization, say, 30, 40 people uh, that want to learn to do this work. How do you do that? What What's involved? Well, you know, actually the first thing that's involved is listening. Uh, it becomes a very central skill. Uh, if you remember what I was saying before about <clears throat> restoring the human, uh, the, the individual's capacity to listen to and trust their own experience? Yes. It would be the same thing at the group level. And we've developed a process uh, uh, building on David Bohm's work and the Native American Council process and some other things. We've developed a process of leading groups of that size, say 30 or 40 people, in a way that allows them to listen to each other. And if, going back to our uh, oval diagram, and hear what's happening in all those different dimensions. So it could be that some of the deeper wounding that's being repressed in the group and disappointments needs to come up and be talked about. It, uh, it may be that some of the, the, uh, the yearnings and uh, the visions and the hopes for the group need to be articulated. It may be that some of the interpersonal relationships between people need to be worked out. So at all these different levels, you, you begin to listen and bring out what needs attention. But the basic assumption is that there's a soul in that group, that there's a soul of the group, which is, in a sense, made, of the collective, made collectively of the souls that are in that group, and that that soul of the group is seeking expression, exactly the same thing as I said before. But, of course, the system is much more complex through which it needs to be expressed. But the work you do is essentially the same is you listen and work and guide with the help of the soul of the group. How does this group of 40 people, how do its relationships need to be reorganized? What 
experiences it does it need to have so that gradually it can become, to use David Bohm's term, more and more of a coherent microculture. If it's a coherent microculture in, from the point of view of working with the soul, it means that it's a human organization through which the force of, of that organization's soul can flow coherently and harmoniously into the world. So what you get as you do that work, you begin to get, you know, in traditional terms, you get a more high-functioning group, a creative group, those kinds of terms from, you know, organizational consulting. But you get something else. You also get everybody, as, as the soul becomes more present and honored and people, through looking at their experience, come back into relationship to it, you get more and more... Uh, each person gets more connected as well as the group as a whole. And you have some of these byproducts that I was talking about. People enjoy coming to work. Uh, they feel grateful to work there. Their creativity obviously goes up. And you have a living human, human community that's more and more soul-infused, to use that word, uh, or more spiritually mature. Now, there are 100,000 pitfalls uh, that get in the way of that process happening. But in terms of applying the perspective that we've talked about at the planetary and the individual uh, levels, this is the way you would think about um, working with a group, is to gradually invite the group to be more and more responsive to its own soul. Sometimes the group discovers that its purpose is quite different than what it imagined from a personal point of view. I mean, there are many different things that can happen, but that's the basic, that's the basic orientation. Tom Yeomans, I want to thank you for this wonderful New School conversation. You're most welcome, Michael. Tom, I just want to say that that was really wonderful. And, and Michelle, just to say quickly that I, I left spaces where we can, you know, put in the, the end earlier on. I right. Just, uh, thank so you. So I, I just wanted to give both of you an opportunity to either comment or ask questions that may elicit points that, that uh, first of all, were just interested in, and secondly, uh, that we may use uh, as part of the interview. There, there's one thing that um, you said, Tom, um, about how um, when, when our consciousness of our soul is sustained individually and then in groups or in the community and, and the culture, when that awareness is sustained, then we all become more uh, we experience it more. We all become more aware right. of that, and that was that just really struck a chord with me. Yes, and you know, uh, an interesting thing, just in terms of things we said earlier in the interview, is in spiritual work, uh, very often what you see happening, and the worst case is cult development, but it but it also can happen just in well-intentioned groups, is there can be a, a sense of just what you're saying is that, oh, you know, if the soul is more present, we're all going to love each other, we're all going to be one, we're all going to be harmonious, um, you know, there will be no conflict, there'll be, you know, we'll all, we're all the same, you know, something like that. Well, in a healthy group, and I think it's true in, uh, for the healthy individual, that in fact, everything becomes more distinct. That everyone, at the, this is paradox, which is, you've seen in my writing, uh, the central paradox of spiritual work, as I understand it, is that we simultaneously become more connected with everything 
and more distinctly ourselves. So in a group that was like that, as you're saying, uh, there would be very distinct individuals and there would be differences and there would be uh, diversity and you know there would there could there would be conflict and there would be you know life uh, it wouldn't be kind of this smooth everything's fine and I think that's one of the distortions of the image of spiritual life that we have again the cults being you know when everyone's in white and so forth and so on uh, that we lose individuality and there's no reason to lose individuality within a spiritual context. In fact, I think individuality is enhanced, but the context needs to shift, and that's the thing that groups uh, you know, can become more aware of, is that each of us has a place and part, each of us is different, we can appreciate each other, we can work together, uh, we can work out differences, and we're committed to a particular purpose, you know, that's in like common wheel, you know, has this wonderful deep sense of purpose that you're all drawn to. And there's a soul in Commonweal uh, that's a very powerful soul and differentiating into many different projects and so forth. And, and everybody is part of that soul and everyone's contributing. Yes. So I don't know if that's speaking to your... But yes. me to make another point. Certainly, but I guess on, on an experiential level, yeah. um, you know, there, there are things in our daily life, in our culture that make us more aware. I mean, for example, we're all very aware of our economic situations because that's something highly stressed in this culture. Um, and on an experiential you know, level, my, my, my mind is very engaged and very active. Um, and that's part of my experience so much that it's almost impossible for me to um, imagine when I'm in that state that I'm actually more than just you know my mind that's happening so I'm just saying on an experiential level yeah. um, it the you know the in my personal experience when I'm able to sustain that sense of, of soul presence yeah. um, it becomes uh, it, it becomes easier right. um, okay. but but just but what struck me was when you said that when a when groups can sustain that presence that right. I, I just, of course, but I just had never thought, you know, I just had never thought beyond myself because there's so much work that goes on. Yeah. Well, you see, what you have there is in terms of what we talked about at the very beginning is when it feels better to you, you're able to disidentify from those economic concerns. They're still there, but you're not identified with them. Okay. So at the group level, Let's say one of the problems that groups get into trouble is they take their work too seriously and they begin to feel competitive with other groups that are doing the same kind of work. Mm -hmm. So they can then get separated from, from their purpose but also from other groups that they really could collaborate with. Mm -hmm. So at a group level, that would be a group identification, like we're the best mm -hmm. or we're the ones who are really bringing this idea in. That could become a place to create anxiety and and contraction versus we have this gift to give who out there has a gift that can you know can come together with what we have to give to really meet the need and actually these dialogues and your new school are a beautiful case in point of your reaching out and doing that thank you so much that's very helpful good Cynthia any thoughts yeah, I just wanted to ask, you know, you were talking about gratitude and Michael asked about beauty. Yeah. Would you say something about joy and mystery in this context? <laughs> <laughs> sure. 
Well, you know, uh, joy. Uh, I mean, Asa Jolie, you know, wrote that little thing to us. But it, 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 I think joy. It's not like happiness. It's not happiness. It's but there seems to be a quality of the soul when you're really connected. Uh, France, Saint Francis gets close to this, the Franciscan joy, where it's a, a joy that beyond any particular condition. Uh, it, it would be it would be the joy of being alive. It's just the joy of being alive, and you, you see this sometimes in people who are really suffering a great deal. Uh, that this, there's this joy of the soul that's able to hold the suffering. So it's not it's a joy that's not contingent on um, on condition, and the gratitude is very much the same way. Remember, in the middle of the talk, I said that San Francisco thing. Uh, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I'm grateful for it. Is that again? I think the gratitude that emerges is the gratitude for being alive, for 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 being sentient, for having the gift of life, and. Mystery seems to come along with this, and mystery is sort of where it begins and ends. So I think that if you if you think of a person who any of us who gets identified with a particular perspective or a particular feeling, or we want to get something done or whatever, we lose the sense of the unknown in which we're living, and we try to make something known, whatever it is, whether we want to control something or make something happen or feel a certain way or not a certain way and so forth. And the mystery is the ground of being, really. It's the unknown in which we in which we live and move and have our being. And what I see in working with people and, and, and in my own life too, as a as I've grown and matured, I have a greater uh well tolerance is one word, but maybe acceptance of the, the essential mysteriousness of life. And so all of these, the joy, the gratitude, because when you're in touch with the mystery of life, there's the beauty right there. There's an order, there's a very deep order, but I don't know how it works. I know parts of it, I can see parts of it, I can feel its presence, whatever. So I think of mystery from a system's perspective. Mystery keeps a system open. Uh, it allows uh, it, it allows the maximum creativity, the maximum amount of life to move in a system, whether that system is, a, you know, an individual or a group or an organization, or maybe the planet as a whole. So I, I think of mystery as the ground of our being, and from the point of view of spiritual maturity, if we can accept it and live in it, uh, it allows it allows the most things to happen. I guess that would be a way of saying. It. Yeah. Thank you. I think. I feel the same, and I feel the mystery is what allows the quality or the feeling of awe. Mm -hmm. There we go. Yes. To still be present. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is interesting that mystery and awe, again, going back to another thing I was saying, is I'm, a, I think, rather practical in my orientation, that I'm interested in how people live their daily lives, the choices they make, and how they get through the day, is that you don't really have to go anywhere special to have awe. Right. You don't. Uh, you just need to open your eyes and and do the work necessary so that you're present, and then the awe is everywhere. Right. The mystery is everywhere. Thank you.